We're beginning a new sermon series this morning. It's a sermon series from the epistles, that's the letters, of Peter. There was a exam that was given to incoming freshmen, and one of the questions on the exam was, what are the epistles? And one of the answers that came in was, well, aren't those the wives of the apostles? Uh, Not quite. Epistle means letter, and we're going to be looking at the two letters of Peter, 1st and 2nd Peter, in this sermon series. And the idea for the title came to me from actually directly from the words of Peter himself. In 1st Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter writes, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Being prepared for action. And how can we do that? I think I've told you this story before, but I just can't help but tell it again. Uh, It's a story about Lucy Swindoll and her mother. It was Lucy's birthday. And her mother called her and invited her over for a special meal and something special she had prepared for her. And Lucy said that when she got to her mother's house, this is Chuck Swindoll's sister, Lucy. And uh, she said that when she got to her mother's house, she had that special birthday meal prepared, her favorite food. Everything was great. And When she got done, she gave her a gift for her birthday and It was getting late and Lucy had a speaking engagement the next day somewhere else and needed to get a good night's rest. And so she started to tell her mom and dad goodbye and her mom said, "Uh, no, 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 I haven't haven't shared with you that that, that special thing I wanted to give you. And uh, she said, well, mom, what's that? And she said, I want to quote for you what I just memorized. Okay? She said, great, Mom. Because her mother was one of those that she said used to take verses all around the house and would also go around the house memorizing those verses and mumbling them as she went. And she said, okay, Mom, what is it? And her mom said, First Peter. Here's Lucy's words. I waited a second and then I asked, First Peter? First Peter what? Oh, the book. I memorized the whole book. Want to hear it? And without hesitating, she started in and quoted every single verse. I was amazed. My 63-year-old mother was a whiz. She never missed a beat as Daddy and I listened. Mesmerized. Listen to me. If we're going to properly set our hope on the grace that will be a part of our second coming, our return of Jesus' experience, we have to be, we have to have disciplined thinking and self-control. In Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul admonishes us, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing what you, 
that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We can know God's will. But it starts by knowing God's Word. By preparing our minds for action. By renewing our minds, as Paul said. This is how we set our hope. This is how we get prepared to face the many trials and temptations that are going to come our way. I can't think of anything that is any more important as we face the mess the totally misguided world in which we live today. Just this morning, I saw a post, and it could be old, but I saw a post where the post said that if you are going to vote at all in an understanding way, then you have to vote in favor of abortion. Folks, that's messed up. Today's message is titled Foundational Facts. And it's an introductory message to our study of Peter. Uh, our text is First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me read those to you. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May God add His blessing to our reading of his word if we're going to prepare our minds for action the action that you and I are going to face as Christians and don't think for a minute don't think for a minute that you're going to be spared of persecution if you faithfully live the Christian life John 15 verse 20 Jesus said if they persecuted me they'll persecute you also If we're going to be prepared, we need to come to Scripture with an inquiring mind. In the second chapter of Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, he writes these words, Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We find that same encouragement at the beginning of Psalms, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Let me ask you this question. How much time do you spend reading and studying God's Word compared to the amount of time that you spend reading other stuff? Just reading the Bible. 
Or reading commentaries and books that tell us about the Bible. Or or books by good Christian authors who are explaining what it means to live the Christian life. Unfortunately, a lot of people are filling their minds with all kinds of other stuff, but not filling their minds with God's Word. The delight that the psalmist talks about is not in what's done. The the delight that the psalmist talks about is not in what's being refrained from being done. The delight that he talks about is upon meditating Meditating on the law of God. Sitting down and reading and then pausing to meditate on God's Word. And so as we come to the letters of Peter to study, to meditate on what one writer has referred to as a handbook for Christian living, I think here is a a place that we can find some help. Listen to the way that a guy by the name of Ceslus Spica begins his commentary on 1 Peter. He says, 1 Peter is the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires. And he goes on to say, it is a model of what a true pastoral letter should be. Now, that hit close to home because most of you by now have at least received a birthday card or an anniversary card that I have signed. And I wonder... What, what might I include in those in terms of encouragement that would be a benefit to you as members of the congregation? So let's begin our look at, uh, at this first letter of Peter by answering a few basic questions. Beginning with the question of who is this writer? The letter begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it would seem that that is pretty self-evident, but yet there are a lot of people who doubt that. The book goes on, as we will read, this person, according to the letter itself, is someone who has seen Christ, chapter 1, verse 5, someone who has witnessed the suffering of Christ, chapter 5, verse 1, and in 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, Peter writes this, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now go with me. Back to the transfiguration, because that's what it's talking about. Who were the three that Jesus took with Him on the mountain of transfiguration? Who experienced that? Peter, James, and John. Peter the Apostle, James and John. And our letter starts with Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ. Not only that, but as early as A.D. 112 to 114. Now think about that. If you take the life of Christ which probably ended in 33. And you look to 112 to 114. Basically, we're talking about, because this letter was actually written by Peter somewhere around 62. And then we're only talking from that time up to 112. It would be like some of us remembering the, the 60s and the 70s. 
How many of you can remember things that happened in the 70s like it was yesterday? Yeah. And in 112 to 114, there was a letter written from a church father by the name of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle. It was a letter to the Christians at Philippi, and it contains actually the very first clear evidence of a quotation from 1 Peter. Now, other people have pointed to allusions or close wording that are found in other documents. First, for instance, First Clement or Justin's dialogue with Trifo. But those are really vague references, not as clear as that as Polycarp. But there, very early, very early, in external evidence, not what the letter itself says, but Internally, the letter says, this is coming to us from Peter the Apostle. Externally, as early as Polycarp, we have clear evidence that Peter the Apostle was the writer of this letter. Peter. Peter the Apostle, who spoke out that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter, who stepped out of the boat and attempted to walk on water to Jesus. Peter who played the part of the tough man in the garden. Remember that? Drew his sword, cut off the ear of Malchus. Peter, who denied Jesus not once, but three times. You see, one of the things that I love about the Bible, compared to other holy books, the Bible doesn't try to hide from us that the people who wrote these Words were human beings who made mistakes just like you and I do. Peter, who in John 21 was restored by the risen Jesus when he was asked three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, once for each of those three denials. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In his commentary, a guy by the name of Wayne Grudem notes that the word apostle is the only office in the Scriptures where the word of Jesus Christ is added. And he says probably that was done because of the authority of the position. The authority that were given to those first 12 and then 11 who were witnesses of everything that Jesus did from the time He started His ministry until the crucifixion and resurrection. So when Peter writes to us, this isn't merely his personal opinion. As an apostle who is commissioned by Jesus Christ, he writes God's words to the churches. Which brings up the second question. To whom? Now if you go back to verse 1, the letter is addressed to the elect. And in the Greek text, that term elect actually modifies the term exiles. It doesn't stand on its own. It's not the subject. And to speak of his readers as elect means that they had been chosen by God, but they were chosen in a specific way. In fact... What we have here is Peter indicating from the outside, outset of his letter that the church of Jesus Christ is actually the Israel of God, His chosen people. And he kind of forecasts to us what's going to be the theme 
of the letter in 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 when he says, the church is called a chosen people. But again, notice how chosen is still modifying. It's modifying people. It's not the subject. And we'll get back to that a little bit later. But who are these churches? Who are these people that have been elect exiles? Well, the location he gives us um, is that they were scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, two of those cities actually existed side by side. Kind of like Minneapolis-St. Paul. How often do we talk about Minneapolis, Minnesota without talking about St. Paul, Minnesota? It's always Minneapolis-St. Paul. In Illinois, it's Champaign-Urbana. Bloomington Normal. Okay, That's how the first of these, Pontus, and the last, Bithynia, were spoken of in that time. And probably the reason is is that the carrier of the letter, Silvanus or Silas, probably started there because we do know that persecution was being uh, beginning very uh, concernedly there in Pontus, probably started there and made a circular route to these others coming back to where he had begun. Which takes us actually to the next question. Why? Why was the letter written? You see, as these churches in northern Asia received this letter, persecution was spreading to their area. In fact, they would be threatened with imprisonment, even death, simply because they were followers of God. They would have to consider their own safety and the safety of their families. Their businesses would be boycotted and they would face financial ruin. Does any of that sound familiar? See, that's why I chose these two letters. I think that persecution is just beginning for the church. Have you been listening? Have you heard some of the political leaders making comments about how Christianity is the problem? It would only be natural for some of those people to begin to doubt the reality of the idea that God was a God of love. <laughs> to begin to doubt His strength and His power against Roman might. His concern for their well-being. In other words, they would consider denying their faith and departing from Christ. Just this week, I read an article by a member of the Christian churches and churches of Christ who has been a part of these churches for many, many years who did a look at the statistics of churches around the country and in the United States now what was at one time the largest growing Christian body our churches is now in decline. That's sad. But people are starting to walk away. Denying their faith. Departing. Now Peter tells us himself why he wrote, but it's not in these first few verses. 
He tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Now in reverse order, notice the words of encouragement. Peter wrote this letter to encourage them to remain faithful in the midst of persecution and stress. To deny Christ was and is the ultimate sin. If in fact it is what's spoken of by blaspheming the Holy Spirit, then the Scripture tells us it's unforgivable. It's the only sin that causes us to lose our salvation, our relationship. Secondly, he says the letter is for explanation. And when he uses the phrase, this is the true grace of God, he's referring to the letter as a whole and and should not be a, a specific antecedent for any of the words in the verses that precede. He's talking about the letter. What he's giving to us is, is an explanation of God's grace. Because you see, the letter begins by explaining how the grace of God was manifest in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, who by suffering on the cross defeated death. He was enthroned as the true king and then exalted to glory. We've been reading some stuff lately, and I love it. Stuff that once again emphasizes a fact that many have overlooked. The focus of the New Testament is not on individual salvation. The focus of the New Testament is on getting people to show their allegiance and their loyalty to Jesus the King, enthroned on the cross, and then in the ascension seated at the right hand of God. The letter is an explanation. And so he writes to exhort them. To exhort them to stand firm. Not to to give way to the persecution. Now here's the point. In the interval, before the consummation of all things... As you and I wait for the final judgment, as believers, we are exhorted more than once to stand fast in such graves. And when we fail to stand, it constitutes apostasy. I'm going to lay it right on top of the table. I do not understand with many scriptures that indicate the opposite. I do not understand how anybody can say, well, once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're always saved. Paul wrote to Timothy about Hymenaeus and Alexander who had shipwrecked their faith. Peter talks about not falling away. You see, it's not a matter of whether or not somebody can pluck us out of God's hand. God's holding us securely. The fact is, is that we have the freedom to say, I'm not going to follow you any longer, God. And we have the freedom to turn away and to walk away. So what are the foundational facts that help us to stay strong? 
And that's why I want to go back and stress that one of the things that Peter says is in fact that we are chosen by God the Father. But what does that mean? Notice also that Peter says we're chosen for a purpose. We're chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ, which is our part in the process of being chosen. You might have also noticed that Peter indicates that we are chosen as a part of God's plan. In fact, he uses the word foreknowledge. This means something that's known before or planned ahead. Now, here's where it gets right down to the nitty gritty. Was it you or I individually that was planned ahead of time? I don't think that's the teaching of Scripture. What was planned ahead of time was not for God to individually pick some people to be His elect and others not to be His elect. Many go on to say that God chose some to be saved and some to be lost. That God knows who will be saved and because He chose them specifically. But if this is true... How do we understand Paul's statement to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, when he says, this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, listen, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody to be saved. But it's the one thing that God will not have. Why? Because He's not all-powerful? No, He is all-powerful. Because He's not all-loving? No, He is all-loving. It's the one thing that God won't have because He loves you and I enough that He wants us to have freedom, freedom to choose Him. The other way to understand that phrase, the concept of election, is that God planned to send Christ into the flow of history. And that we are told in Scripture. That He planned to do that in order to redeem man from his lostness because He knew we would rebel because of our freedom. And that He planned to save those who would believe. And so that view hold strongly to the free will of man, yet at the same time hold strongly to the sovereignty of God. It's the plan that was chosen. It was the plan that was known. Not which individuals will choose to accept, believe, or be loyal to the plan. Let me bring it home. I do not believe that God chose me specifically to be the minister of First Christian Church at Brook. I believe for several reasons that this is where we can best do what God wants done. And I believe for several reasons that there was a matching up process going on because there were calls made not from one, but several directions. Do you know that I received two calls from people not associated specifically with this church for me to consider this church before I got the call from Dwayne to come and share with the board? There were things happening. But at any point in that process... 
Jesse and I could have chose to go in a different direction. We had that freedom. And God would have brought somebody else who needed the needs that this congregation had. Our response to God's plan is that you and I issue forth into a lifelong attitude of submission, of obedience, of loyalty. Obedience to His will in every aspect of life. And this is what Bill Baker refers to as principle number one for standing firm. That you and I can know and that we should be able to stand firm because we can know we will be assisted in our times of struggles because God has chosen a plan to assist us, to make us His elect followers. And that plan includes that we are in fact going to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. Now that's an important phrase. Because God's provision to change our relationship was the shedding of Christ's blood on the cross when you and I were enemies of God. We weren't chosen ones. We were standing outside, looking in. And the sprinkling of the blood is an Old Testament image that is used in three different ways. One, in terms of the cleansing of the lepers in Leviticus. Two, in terms of the ordination of the priests in Exodus 29. And third, in terms of the Day of Atonement, of the sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat for all of us to receive forgiveness. So, the sprinkling of Christ's blood accomplished our forgiveness and our cleansing. And it makes, listen to me, it makes you and I priests. So Pat, I've been getting on you for a while now and I probably really shouldn't. When you call me pastor, I should turn around and say, yes, pastor, what is it that you want? Because scripturally speaking, there is no division between the ministry and the laity. We are all ministers. We are all priests. Every one of us. Which leads us to the third thing. And that is that we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now that word simply means we're set apart. We're set apart. There is an ongoing process in which we have begun to be cleansed. We were forgiven, but we are continuing to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Sometimes people have the idea that the receiving of the Holy Spirit means that there's going to be some kind of real emotional experience, some kind of sign that that they've somehow been chosen. But again, nowhere in Scripture does it show us that there has to be a dramatic emotional experience to prove that the Spirit has set us apart for salvation. Nowhere is it indicated that we're going to have warm and fuzzies or that we're going to see bright lights or an audible voice. In fact, in John 16, Jesus told the disciples that the Holy Spirit would be the revealer of truth. 
And when we get here to 1 Peter chapter 1, we see that Peter indicates that the seed by which we experience the new birth is in fact the enduring Word of God. This Word about Jesus and from Jesus, given to us by the Holy Spirit, revealed to us, explained to us by the Holy Spirit, is the source of our new life in Christ. It's the truth that causes us to conclude that Jesus is the Lord. So the Holy Spirit works, among other ways, through the truth revealed in the Word to set us apart to faithfulness. The Holy Spirit in that way presents us to God who receives us and gives us the benefits of being a part of the chosen plan. So, did you hear it? The Father chose. The Son's blood was sprinkled. The Holy Spirit set us apart. Peter begins his letter right here with all three of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So listen to me. When the going gets tough, you can keep on keeping on because you know that you have accepted the plan. Or at least I hope all of you have accepted the plan. The plan that was made from before all time. You've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you've chosen to faithfully be obedient to Jesus. That's what faith is. Not information that you have in your head. But loyalty demonstrated by your heart. So Peter has only one benediction to make at this point. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's actually a prayer. At this point, the usual customary Greek letter would give the sender some kind of greeting uh, in the form of, of a Greek word known as kyrene. Peter changes that just a little bit and uses the word kyris, grace. In fact, both Paul and Peter substitute the word grace in that normal reading. Beyond the wish that these be multiplied in the lives of the, of the addressees, Peter goes on in the letter to speak of the themes of grace as a present and future gift from God and of peace as a result of God's specific activity in Christ. As believers, Peter points out in the letter that you and I are going to be the recipient of God's grace in times of suffering that we'll be stewards of this manifold grace. And also, in terms of relationship with outsiders, he says you and I are to seek peace and pursue it. To be of one mind. To love one another. Avoid revenge. Make our defense with gentleness and reverence. And our wish should be for peace within the community and with those outside. In these first two verses, Peter has basically said to us, in a nutshell, here's where we're going. That's where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. And I think it's interesting that as he closes 1 Peter in chapter 5, he closes in much the same way. 
that he begins. He appeals to the grace of God and speaks of God as the God of all grace. So he begins the letter and he closes the letter by pointing to the grace of God which is the only way you and I can be saved. We can't earn it. Anybody here managed to go all week being perfect? I don't think I've done that this morning. We have to have God's grace. But to have God's grace, we have to be obedient and loyal to the King of the kingdom. Jesus Christ. Let's pray.